Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Graham Davies. Graham is the presentation coach. He is a reformed barrister who found himself earning more money as a public speaker than he was as a barrister. And his life there as a public speaker morphed. He he watched some other people speak before him at a number of events he attended, and he realized that they were awful. And he couldn't help himself offer some advice. And that, in essence, became his job. And now that's what he does. He is he helps politicians, celebrities, and corporate executives, mainly of, of global firms, hone in on their audience and their message and the impact that speaking needs to have for them. He's written a book called The Presentation Coach. And we chat today about the process of crafting a message, how to practice under pressure, and how to deliver the message. A fantastic, high-energy, high-octane discussion with Graham. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. My name is Graham Davis. I am the presentation coach. That is both my brand and what I do. I coach senior executives, senior politicians and celebrities on what to say and how to say it when they're under extreme pressure. Should we talk about the most high-profile interview of the last week? <laughs> or not? <You> <laughs> well, it depends whether you're a royalist or a, or a political follower, Dominic. Uh, whatever you think is appropriate. Not one of your clients? Certainly not. I can definitely <laughs> say that. Without any lawyers present in the room, he is definitely not one of my clients and probably won't be in the near future either. <laughs> okay. How come you do this, right? So what, what were you doing before this became your life's work and your brand? I used to practice as a barrister for 12 years, both at the matrimonial and the criminal bar. But before that, I was president of the Cambridge Union, and that allowed me to speak in front of many large audiences that had high-profile politicians or high-profile celebrities that were used to get bums on seats, as it were, but there would be essentially a thousand students in that audience, and many students would be trying to speak to get votes accrued for the purposes of running to be president of the union. And I ruthlessly used my ability to tell, at the time, fairly crass, dirty one-liners to essentially differentiate myself as a speaker from everyone else who was trying to put themselves forward as, as, as future politicians. And that was what indeed got me elected as president of the union. And so I leveraged that to eventually become a barrister. But also I realised, and this is the late 1980s by now, that there was a budding marketplace for professional after-dinner speakers, people who were paid money 
to entertain a particular audience that was in front of them at that particular time. And usually it would tend to be a run-of-the-mill comedian or a slightly faded sports celebrity. But there was a marketplace at that time just starting for a professional. And I went into that marketplace ruthlessly and efficiently. Oh, I see. So by day at the bar and by nighttime, I mean, you talking to a different audience, you weren't speaking to rugby clubs and WI, were you? <laughs> Sadly, I never qualified for rugby clubs or WI. It would be accountants, investment bankers, stockbrokers, management consultants, big association dinners on at big hotel ballrooms on Park Lane, people wearing black tie. Essentially, it was professional audiences. And indeed, I, I leveraged my identity as a barrister to make up for the fact that I wasn't a celebrity at the time. But I started doing that, doing about half a dozen a year. And then eventually, by the time it got to the mid-90s, I was doing 100 after-dinner speeches a year and also going to court nine days out of 10. Something had to give. And essentially, it was going to be the bar because I was using the criminal bar as a thin veneer of respectability for myself at that point. And I enjoyed the speaking far more and the speaking was paying me a lot more. Okay. But then I jumped into something else. I was turning up earlier and earlier for the events that I was speaking at during the course of the evening. And I was seeing an awful lot of speeches being given by several senior executives at the conference that was usually occurring before the dinner that I was speaking at. And I noticed how bad those presentations were. They were too long, too boring, and too filled with slides. And I started having some casual conversations at dinner with senior executives about their presentations. And I realized that I could help them quite a lot. And I could start, I could start being paid for that advice. And so that's how I started the career as a presentation coach in the mid to late 1990s. Oh, I see. So that, that's, that's sort of clearly, you know, sort of without a strategy, moving from one opportunity to another. Without a strategy, you're absolutely right. It started off being accidental, but it has become over the years very deliberate and calculated. Yeah, no, but the idea of speaking 100 times a year and that that was earning, that you were earning more from that than you were from working full time is, um, is staggering. I, I think I was never earning, of my total earnings, the criminal and matrimonial bar never made up more than about 20% of it. And then obviously coaching must be more lucrative or did you do the coaching because you enjoyed that differently? Well, the thing about coaching is that you have much more of a chance to have a long-term relationship with a client. With an afternoon speech, the, um, the Wooden Table Manufacturers Association, <laughs> although they're having a huge dinner for 1,500 people at the Grosvenor House Hotel, they'll only use me for one dinner. And then, of course, they're going to use somebody else. So you're, you're a bit of a tart. It's a one-night stand. But of course, when you're, having, or when you're coaching an individual or a group of individuals within a company, there's a very good chance that other individuals or other groups within that company will want to use you as well. And so you've got much more of a chance of a relationship, which in the long term will be far more lucrative. And the people that you coach, how do they, what, they perceive themselves to not be very good? Or you're saying, mate, I've seen you speak and honestly, I can help you. <laughs> you usually they've come to some form of perception about it themselves. But often it's a perception that's been quietly said to them by a colleague, usually in terms of, uh, John, do you think that maybe you could do with some help 
with uh, your presentation? Or do you think that you're getting the right results? And often just the very fact that they're being asked the question gives them the hint that they really do need some help and advice. Do you have a typical impact or is it does it depend on the individual and what bit about their presentation? Or maybe there's a, you sort of, de- you deconstruct a presentation and then start building back up. What are the bits of a presentation then maybe? Uh, it's hard for me to actually describe a typical impact, but I can give you some of the typical symptoms that I often see when a senior executive isn't presenting as well as he could. Often they are addicted to a almost a narcotic substance, which I would call PowerPoint Prozac or Visual Valium. Essentially, they're creating a slideshow for which they are the softly spoken voiceover. And really, instead of having an impact, it's more likely to have a narcoleptic impact on the audience they're speaking to. So first of all, I'm often trying to deal with the domination that slideware has over their lives. Secondly, they don't necessarily have a technique to actually create the words that they're going to say under pressure. They often just look at their laptop, power up the slideware, create a sequence of bullet points and quote, talk to the slides, unquote. My technique gives them a process whereby they can prepare their spoken material with laser beam precision in advance, rather than waiting for inspiration by look staring at the audience that are staring back at them in judgmental silence. <laughs> And what does that what does that process involve? The way I look at it is that speaking just consists of two phases. Phase number one, deciding what to say. Phase number two, saying it. It really is as simple as that. But I, of course, give people a sequence of events to go through when they need to have that challenge. The first thing I ask them to do is to make sure they analyze their audience and work out what sort of people they are, their age ranges, their areas of expertise, sometimes their job title, and to work out the answers to five questions. Number one, who are they? Number two, why are they together in that room? Because they're not necessarily there primarily to listen to that particular speaker. Number three, what do they want to hear? That is something that they don't necessarily have worked out themselves. And that's where an audience has to have a leader, a lead given to them by the presenter. Question number four, what do they need to hear? And that, again, is something that they often haven't worked out for themselves, and the presenter has to work it out for them. And question number five, what must you give them during your presentation that means that it is guaranteed that you get what you want? from having given the presentation. And that fifth question is the crucial one. Aha, uh-huh. the impact that you want to have, thinking past giving the talk. Indeed so. And eventually, once you've got the answer to those questions, you have assessed what I call the starting position. The starting position is what the audience knows, thinks, or feels about your subject before you've started your presentation. Or more precisely, it's your best guess at what they know, think, or feel. And I recommend to my clients that they actually try to write that out in one or two brief, pithy sentences before they start the rest of their preparation process. And the uh, how do people respond to when you say, how do you want them to feel? 
that's very difficult because sometimes they say, well, look, we're accountants. We don't feel anything. <laughs> but the thing is, when it comes to the spoken word, people often forget what you've made them think. But if you get the words right, they will never forget what you make them feel. And I think there does, in the ideal presentation, have to be a hint of an emotional content, even when you're talking to actuaries, investment bankers or accountants. I mean, the theory of how memory gets laid down is exactly that, that you, your life isn't so you don't rewind your your video of your life. It's a series of flick books, but each of those memories that you've got is is linked to an emotion. So if you create no emotion, if you create no emotion, you'll be instantly forgettable. Well, I think that's right. The way, uh, just taking a step back from my process for a moment, I believe that um, a presentation should be looked at as a journey, a journey from where the audience are to where you'd like them to be, and you're not going to maybe be able to make them carry out that journey with just information on its own. You should have information plus attitude. And I think your attitude should be one of being a leader. And they must feel that you are leading them emphatically, concisely, and compellingly along that journey line. Well, and I guess that's equally important, whether it's your corporate clients or whether it's your political clients. Does the leadership thing still apply to celebrities, though? Well, of course, celebrities, I mean, I, I use that word in a, in a very loose sense. A celebrity might be um, a former Olympic gold medalist. A celebrity might be somebody who used to be a businessman, but is now doing motivational speaking in a more general sense, not necessarily talking about a specific piece of business expertise. It might be a former politician who's moved away from politics, who's now making some money on the professional speaking circuit. The way I look at the concept of concept of speaking and leading is that there's only one type of speech, the persuasive speech. You are persuading them to do something. Uh, you might be persuading them to buy a product. You might be persuading them to absorb a particular idea. Or sometimes at 10 o'clock at night, you're simply persuading them to laugh. Aha. Uh -huh. And so all of that is, yes, I see what you mean. Now, all of that is leading somebody towards a destination that you have in mind for them. Yes, that's exactly right. And indeed, the, 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 the destination I would always aim at, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, the concept of trying to work out what their starting position is. The destination that you should be aiming at is what I call their finishing position. And the finishing position is what you want the audience to know, think or feel about your subject by the time that you finished your presentation. No slides, though? No slides at all? Just speak without visual, visual aids? Or do you allow people a small crutch? <laughs> well, the way I look at slides is that often they're used these days as audio-visual anesthesia. For maximum impact, I believe you should use minimum slides. Usually people have a... Many of my clients have a bit of a dirty secret. They're not using slides for the benefit of the audience. They're using the slides for their own benefit, as their notes, as their bullet points to actually remember their presentation, the words that they're going to say. And indeed, the fact that people use slides in that way means that they get very lazy about actually creating the spoken content, what they're actually going to say. I don't think anybody has ever walked out of a conference and thought, gosh, I enjoyed that conference. I wish there were more speakers, I wish each speaker had spoken for longer and I wish each speaker had used more slides 
with more bullet points and with a smaller font. That's what I really, really want. I think that slides do have their place, but they should be used sparingly like caviar and not spread around like marmalade. Well, uh, if I think about the TED conferences or the TED talks that I watch online, you know, 18 minutes seems like a good length. And mostly people aren't using slides, except where a slide really makes the difference to what they're trying to say. TED has turned public speaking into rock and roll again. That 18 minute time limit, I think, has been one of their greatest contributions to the world over the last 10 years. I think people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter all the time. Everyone has to get to the point quicker. And let's face it, even during the course of this conversation you and I are having now, at the back of our mind, both of us might be thinking, gosh, I wonder what's going into the inbox of my, of my email on my mobile phone, which is only a foot away. You always have to contend with people's tendency to want to look at their phones. So attention spans are getting shorter, and 18 minutes is a very good maximum length. And yes, TED also do manage to use what I call, the, this is very much the five Graham Davis rules of how to use slides. Number one, a slide should emphatically add impact to your presentation. If it doesn't add impact, it shouldn't be there. Secondly, it should be very simple so that it can be instantly absorbed by the audience. And thirdly, it should be ideally pictures not words, because sometimes for a particular product or a particular concept, a picture of it is so much more immediately striking than words describing it. Fourthly, bullet points don't have any place on a slide except in one summary slide at the end. And fifthly, they shouldn't be essentially slidements. They shouldn't be essentially pages from a book on a screen. Many people write narrative slides, which essentially they read out verbatim to the audience, and the presentation becomes a public slide reading contest in which the presenter always finishes last. Oh, man, there's nothing more toe-curling than being in a presentation where somebody assumes the audience have lost the ability to read. Yes, especially when it's about two o'clock in the afternoon, just after lunch, <laughs> the lights are dimmed. And the voice of the presenter is just slightly soothing. Ah, oh, lovely. Um, how do you get people to prepare? Because it, it, it seems to me, again, thinking about TED, that it's obvious that people have put in way more prep than the average presenter. You know, this is their, maybe their moment, their one moment that they're going to be globally available to the world to see their 18 minutes of fame. And so people do put a lot of effort into it, more than maybe a corporate slide deck for the quarterly all-hands meeting. Yes, they do. And that is another great contribution that TED has made to the world of, of public speaking. They force people not only to prepare, but to rehearse and to rehearse rigorously and ruthlessly so that the words that come out of their mouths under pressure have come out of their mouths under pressure several times before. And often they are rehearsed so much that they don't look rehearsed anymore. That's the key to rehearsal. But TED also, indeed, do force you, of course, to do proper presentation. As I understand it, they do like to see a script well in advance of any rehearsal so that they can actually do some editing of the script. And that's something I certainly do encourage, that whatever technique you use, whether it's my technique or anyone else's technique, 
you should write as much of it as possible out in advance, either on a piece of paper or on a screen, so that you can actually see those words in advance and look at them and think, yeah, that works, that works. That works. Oh, wait a minute, that sentence, that's a repeat of a previous sentence, so I'm going to cut that. It's only by looking at the script, saying it out loud, checking it with colleagues, and then doing an editing process that it becomes the best script. No really brilliant speech or presentation was ever really brilliant during its first draft. How do you practice under pressure? How do you, how do you create an environment that is stressful? Well, of course, uh, one of the things that the England football team, England footballers used to always say, oh, we, we don't like to practice penalties because you can't recreate the atmosphere of 80,000 people staring at you and another 5 million people at you watching the game on television when you're doing a penalty shootout. Well, you have to have a certain level of imagination. Ideally, you make sure that you're rehearsing. First of all, in the rehearsal process, you make sure that you rehearse on your own effectively. Then you rehearse in front of a small group of colleagues that know your techniques and know your presentation effectively. And then eventually, and this is sometimes not possible, but it's the ideal scenario for presentation, you actually do it in the venue using the lights, the equipment, the visual aids, and everything else in a battle condition scenario so that you've, you've actually escalated the rehearsal process as much as possible before the actual day itself. Okay, so that whole, you're not nervous about going up the steps and going onto the stage and the lights because you've done that before, so that bit's easy. Yes, indeed. You should actually practice the walk from either the front row or the dressing room on the side of the stage so that you know even how many steps you're going to take to make sure that you know where to turn so that you don't trip over a cable. Yes, so that everything that you've done under pressure in front of the audience, you've done before and you feel comfortable about it. Uh-huh. And Graham, you've got, uh, you've, you wrote a book about this whole thing. Yes, it's called, it's called The Presentation Coach. And indeed, I build on that concept of the starting position and the finishing position by using a technique which sounds like an old technique, but the way I've done it, it's refreshed it a bit. Messaging. The concept of the message has probably been overused, misused, and abused by politicians, salesmen, marketing, and PR people for a thousand years. But provided it's used properly, it can still be a very effective weapon. I've mentioned to you that ideally, a presentation should be something where you're leading the audience from the starting position to the finishing position. Well, they've got to have a reason to go on that journey. And that reason is what I call the micro-message. A micro-message is a sequence of words which quickly and compellingly captures the essence of your company, your product, or your idea. It's what you would say if you only had 10 seconds in which to do the entire presentation. You should think of the micro-message as the, as the essential crown jewel that's somewhere in the heart of your presentation that is so valuable that when the audience hears it, they'll want to snatch it out of your hand, fondle it, put it in their pocket, and then take it out of the room and show it to someone else or to many other people that weren't even there during your presentation. That is how valuable the micro-message should be. 
And it's what makes my technique stand out from everybody else's. Do you get people to use that at the beginning, sort of tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, or do you do you save the crown jewels for the middle of the... Now, you mentioned that tell them theory just then in your question. The tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. That's the theory you're talking about. Uh, forgive me, I believe that's very 20th century, if not 19th century. To me, that's the same as saying, tell them you're going to be patronising, be patronising, and then explain to them slowly what the word patronising actually means. My belief is that that is, is outmoded, that really you should choose your words so carefully that you say everything brilliantly and you say it once. There's a possibility that there might be some things that might be repeated once in a summary at the end, but you don't say it three times because otherwise you'll sound like a primary school teacher. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. What else are you helping people with? Is there particular things around politicians? Are there nuances? Well, with politicians, of course, they have to present themselves in a wide variety of scenarios. It's not just the big keynote speeches. Sometimes it can be one-to-one television interviews, or sometimes that, that dreaded scenario, which some of them will be putting themselves in front of over the next three weeks. The combined interview with a journalist plus interaction with a studio audience. So really, they do have to have a micro-message available that they'll base their material on, but they also have to have what I call key elements to support that micro-message, stuff that they know that they can fall back on under pressure. Because, let's face it, it's quite difficult to think of new, brilliant stuff when not only are there 100 people staring at you in front of you, actually live human beings in the room, but when there are three or four TV cameras and your words are being beamed to more than a million people at home, so it's actually quite daft to come up with totally new stuff under pressure. The knack is to make sure that they have what I call the key elements become shiny golden nuggets that they can access on a sort of notional screen above their eyes that they can actually fall back on under pressure so that they're not reinventing the wheel every time they open their mouths. And you, you see that when you listen to them interviewed on the radio, you know, where you see it on the radio, you know, do you know what I mean? You, you hear it on the radio where somebody gets asked a question and they say, that's a great question. And then they answer another question that they already had prepared to answer. That, that phrase you use there, that's a great question. That's the classic giveaway phrase that you must never say in a media interview because it gives the game away that you've already thought up the answer and you're about to give a pre-prepared answer. Again, this is a process you've got to practice and get into the rhythm of so often that these answers don't sound pre-rehearsed. I also coach politicians to do something which may seem incredibly heretical when you think of the way that politicians have historically answered questions over the years. What you mean? You coach them not to lie? No. <laughs> Lying isn't, isn't something that I, I deal with specifically, <laughs> or at least that's what I'm going to say on this podcast. No, I'm actually going to suggest something even more heretical, that they answer the question head on. Ah, okay. We've all seen the, polit- the politician, what I call the devil's donut, where essentially they, Theresa May was a particularly bad practitioner of this, where she'd hear a question, she'd sidestep, go round and round and round and round in a circle And you'd end up back in the same place as you were when she started answering the question, leaving nothing in the middle, hence the concept of the donut. I actually prefer my clients 
to answer the question head on, even if it's an awkward answer, even if it's an answer that they know will cause some discomfort to their supporters or to people sitting at home, because it's such a refreshing change. And sometimes, just occasionally, it's also acceptable in a corporate context, switching back to the corporate um, scenario, that actually it's a good thing to sometimes be able to say, I actually don't specifically know the answer to that question, but I will be able to tell you if you let me allow me to have some time to research it and I will specifically get back to you. Yes, some humility, some some humanity. Humility and humanity. Those are two very difficult things to coach politicians and probably needs a better presentation coach than me. <laughs> okay. Uh, Graham, knowing what you know now, is there a point in time you'd take some knowledge back to? For the last 10 years, my book, The Presentation Coach, has been such a huge asset to my business. It's a combination for, of, a, of a business card, a brochure, and a distillation of all my best concepts. And I wrote it in the cusp between 2009 and 2010, over a period of about four to five months. And it's something that I was reluctant to do, because I actually find writing the written word to be read, I find it a very painful process, Dominic. For me, it's about as enjoyable as crapping a melon. And so <laughs> I've been putting off writing the book for many years. And many people had said to me, Graham, if you're a, supposedly the expert on presentation, and clearly you think you are, why don't you have a book? So my advice that I would give to myself of about the Graham Davis of 2005 would be, for heaven's sake, write the book now. Don't wait another five or six years. Why is it painful for you to create written word? It's interesting. Somehow I, I like the way that um, the written word comes alive in the mouth of a speaker, as opposed to the way that it stays a little bit dead and flat on the page. And so when I do write, I do write in what I believe is a very intensely conversational style, as if I'm actually talking intensely to the reader at a dinner party. And for me, that's quite difficult to sustain over a long period of time. Okay, I see, I see. And what um, along the way you maybe picked up and read a couple of other business books. Are there any you think other people should should pick up and read? Well, one of them is a book that I'm reading at the moment called "Talk Triggers" by Jay Bear, and that's spelled B A E R. And what he talks about is something that's very similar to my concept of micro messaging, but I would say it's a parallel concept. A talk trigger, as he describes it, is something that epitomizes the USP of a particular product in a way that makes other people talk about that product. So, for instance, would you believe there's a, there's a theme park in the middle of Indiana, I believe it is, called Christmas World, where even in July and August, you could go and play on various rides and swim in various different types of swimming pools, and it has a Christmas theme. But of course, it's usually about 110 degrees outside in Indiana in the middle of August. But their talk trigger is that they give away they give away soft drinks and sunblock for free. And when you're taking two or three kids to something that lasts seven or eight hours, that is a huge trigger for conversation. And Jay Bear talks about how that talk trigger concept is useful for marketing all sorts of different companies. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. What else you got? Also, I've realized over the years that um, there are lots of things that I'm quite good at, and I like to think that my knowledge 
of presenting and how to present is, is good. But there are lots of things I'm bad at, like, for instance, creating invoices, drawing up contracts, doing all the logistics of running a business. I'm delighted to say that I have an excellent commercial director who now sorts these things out for me. But also I've learned not to beat myself up over my inadequacies, mainly because I read a book called Strengths Finder by Tom Rath. And essentially what that tells you is don't focus on your weaknesses as an entrepreneur. Focus on your strengths and make them even better and get other people to sort out your weaknesses for you. Do you know what your top five are off the top of your head? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I have to say, I've got to say, um, off the top of my head, um, that's quite a challenge. And, and it's not one I'm probably prepared to commit to at the end of a podcast. <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. What else? What else you got? The last one is this. This is written by a chap called Larry Wingert, who calls himself the pit bull of personal development. And some people might call him an inspirational speaker. Other people would call him an irritational speaker because although you might think that I'm pretty crass and blunt, he makes me look like Mother Teresa. And what he talks about in the book that I'm going to tell you the title of in a moment is that situation where you've had a business failure and it's a failure that you've put an awful lot of effort and emotion into. And unfortunately, it's absolutely crashed and burned. He talks about, yes, you do have to mourn that failure. You do have to be miserable and sulk for a while. But eventually, you've got to move forward and get on with it. And that's why Larry Wiggett's book is called Shut Up, Quit Whining, and Get a Life. And I recommend that concept to everybody. Okay. Very good. Very good. And what uh, if people want to get a hold of you, where's the, how's the best place to get a hold of you? The best place would be uh, via my email address, which is very simply graham at grahamdavis.co.uk. Okay, fantastic. And Graham, what's the um, one last piece of nugget of, of wisdom for those people who might be giving, speaking today when they're listening to this, they might, have, they might be talking today or tomorrow? The last nugget is this. No matter how much time you think you need to prepare, for a speech, a presentation, or a radio or TV interview, always allow twice as much time because no presentation under pressure has ever failed because of too much preparation rehearsal. Most of them fail because of too little. Graeme, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.